We had a big organ dedication on uh, Friday night. And a lot of people here from around the city. And somebody even came from, well, people came from various parts of the country. And somebody drove 45 minutes away, said he'd like to make this church his home. And then he said, uh, now, I'm new to this Presbyterian thing. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how Presbyterians worship. And uh, can you tell me what we experienced tonight? Is that what, the way Presbyterians worship? I said, the first thing I'll tell you, there is no Presbyterian worship. You'll be pursuing that the rest of your life. The second thing I'll say is if you try to figure out what it is by coming to this church, you'll certainly never figure out. It's totally unpredictable. There's one, th- I said, there are two things we don't do. You made a liar of me on one of them today. I said, we, do, we don't do two things. One, we don't handle snakes. And we don't dance. But I just noticed dancing all over this place. I even saw an elder moving a little rhythmically. Thank you, musicians. Thank you very much. If you weren't moved by that, you're just dead and too lazy to lay down. <laughs> Our text this morning is Habakkuk chapter 2. We've been studying the minor prophets, little books at the end of the Old Testament, written about 600 years, somewhere 900 to 600 years. They're closing in on the coming of Christ before Christ, 600 years before Christ. That's the That's about the date of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a little book, but it's power-packed and it's unique in that it is the record of one man's conversation with God. God does give messages to surrounding nations and that he intends for Judah to hear, but Habakkuk, as we've been learning, shows us how to doubt well. He shows us that when that when we have our questions, when we're angry, even with God, and even when we don't know what to say, he gives us a script that we can use to pray to him to say, these are my questions. These are my disappointments. Now, Habakkuk's problem is that he's been preaching about the sins of God's people. And uh, he's been asking, Lord, when are you going to cause these people to repent? And then beyond, but, but beyond that, he says, uh, effectively, uh, we, we, our people need to repent. But there are even worse nations out there. When are you going to bring them to justice? And God says, I have good news for you. I'm going to punish those nations. I'm going to judge them. And I'm also going to take care of the sins of your parishioners, because I'm going to send one of those evil nations, Babylon, to come and take your people, take them into captivity, and that's the way I'll discipline them. Now Habakkuk is mad. He wanted his people to repent of their sins. He wanted them to be corrected, but he didn't want too much correction because they weren't as bad as the other people. And now the idea that God was going to use one of these pagan nations to punish his people, he is furious. And he pours out his anger with God and where we left him a couple of weeks ago was sitting on the watchtower in verses one through three, one and two, uh, just verse one. He is on the watchtower saying, okay, I've made my argument. Now I'm going to wait for you to answer me. 
And I said when we looked at this text that when we doubt well, doubting well means asking all of our questions, pouring out all of our complaints to God, but also being ready when God answers because he doesn't always give the answer that we want to hear, but as a good and righteous God, he always gives us the answer we need to hear because ultimately he wants life to go well with us. He loves us. Jesus is the proof of that. So we'll begin reading in chapter 2. Let's go back up to verse 2. We'll begin reading there and go through verse 11. And uh, here is what God says back to Habakkuk. The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so may he may run who reads it, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant mind, a man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors certainly rise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you've plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you please bow in prayer while I go get a drink of water? We'll pray when I get back. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word that finds us. Your word that is sharper than any two-edged sword dividing bone and marrow, your word that exposes our hearts and our motives, cuts in order to heal. We pray it in the strong name of Jesus, amen. <clears throat> Several years ago, a, a high school commencement speech went viral on YouTube. It was by David McCullough Jr. David McCullough, the famous historical writer, you may know, but his son is a, was at the time a, an English teacher at the prestigious Wellesley Preparatory School. He was invited 
because he's a popular teacher, he was invited to give the commencement speech. And here was his opening line. You are not special. The, the, the message went viral. He made this point early on. He said, uh, contrary to what your parents have told you, what your grandparents have told you, what a purple dinosaur named Barney has told you, you are not special. Yeah, you just think about it. It doesn't make sense. He said, if you are special, meaning you are the most special person in the world, as your parents intend for you to believe, if you are the most special person in the world, how can that be possible? Because uh, 6.8 million billion people occupy this planet, and they're all being told they're special. Not everyone, of course, is being told they're special, sadly. But how can you be the most special person in the world when everybody at least on your soccer team who's getting a participation trophy and, and everybody in your class, everybody is being told, you are the most special. Now, they went viral. Why would, why, would a, why would a message like that go viral? That's not the American way, is it? Why would we attune to something like that? Maybe it is that we think finally somebody's telling everybody else that they're not special and I am the one who is special. I think it exposes something deeper and more profound. And it is that every one of us knows it's not true. Now, what David McCullough does not do, there is a book that followed, of course, there was a book that followed, and it's a pretty good book, but it's not a Christian answer. So what he doesn't explain is, is there any sense in which we are special? And don't worry, I'll get to next week. I'm telling you this week you're not special. Next week I'm going to tell you you are special. But just pretend like you didn't hear that today. The, 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 the Bible does say that we're made in the image of God. So yes, every human being is inherently special. But there's something seriously wrong. Something profoundly flawed. And every one of us knows it. McCullough says the answer is to do something special. If you do something special, then you will become special. I know what he's trying to get at. He's trying to get at the, this, the, the, the sin that the, the ancients exposed as acedia or, or apathy, just not caring and, and an entitlement idea. And, and so I don't need to do anything because somebody else will take care of me. There is, a, there is something to that, but... But the gospel has this profound answer. The gospel tells us something that we don't want to hear in order to tell us something we really know we need to hear, that we're longing for. An old friend named Jack Miller, who's long since been with the Lord, used to say, cheer up. You're a lot worse than you think you are. And cheer up. You're more loved in Christ than you can ever imagine. Habakkuk's answer from God is, Habakkuk, cheer up. In the first chapter, he said, cheer up, I'm going to solve. I'm going to, I'm going to bring righteousness to bear on this world. And cheer up, Habakkuk. 
you and your people are even worse than you thought they were. But cheer up, I love you enough to do something about it. Now you have to wrestle with the bad news before you get to the good news. And, and uh, that bad news is, is, as we said here, the exposure of our sin. Uh, we'll talk more about this in a moment, but there are a list of woes. We only got to one woe in, uh, in the verses we read this morning, but we'll read several other woes, five to be exact, before we end chapter two. And these each expose not just the outward sin, but the motives behind the sin in Habakkuk's heart and his people's heart and thus in all our hearts as well. And in exposing that sin, he also exposes, in exposing and in, and in confronting the defensiveness and the, and the self-justification of Habakkuk, he exposes the faulty logic of even the prophet as well as the people. And here's the faulty logic. No, maybe you haven't taken fault logic in, in college, but you know what it, you know what it is. It is that you, you, a logical syllogism, we call it, is you have a list of premises, and when you give those several premises, then they lead logically to a conclusion. Because this is true, because that is true, because this is true, therefore, this is true. You with me? Well, there are two syllogisms that we tend to practice, and they're represented by Habakkuk on behalf of his people. Here is one. All people are sinners. Nobody disagrees with that. All people are sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's clear in the Bible. All people are sinners. All sinners deserve punishment. Some sinners are worse than others. Some sinners deserve worse punishment. Second syllogism we can tend to practice is this. All are sinners. Some sinners do good things. Good things deserve reward. So some sinners who do good deserve reward. Now there is, when you say something has a logical flaw in it, it means that you expose that one of those premises is defective or the conclusion is defective. And in both of these, there is a defective premise. And the very defective premise is that anyone is ever righteous on his own. No one is righteous. No, not one. Never and they never produce righteousness. There is only one righteous being in the universe, and that is God. That's the whole point of Romans, especially Romans 3. A righteousness of God from God has been revealed from heaven, exposing the unrighteousness of every single human being. So Habakkuk began with this premise. Yes, I'm a sinner, My people are sinners, but we have a little bit of righteousness. 
which makes us not quite as bad as other people. Therefore, we don't deserve punishment like other people. Yes, we've sinned, but we haven't sinned like that. And God says, by the time we get to the end of chapter 2, he will expose that every sin that he calls sin is just as bad as the other. Do you know he even talks about violent crime in chapter 2? Violent crime has possessed our minds. It's possessed our hearts. It's, it's wounded us as a congregation. But do you know that by the end of this chapter, we'll learn that God hates self-righteousness and greed and laziness and worship as much as violent crime. No one is righteous. No, not one. It's one sentence that destroys every one of Habakkuk's arguments and it's in verse four of chapter two. It is the gem of the Bible. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Why? Because he thinks he is upright, but the righteous shall live by his faith. There is only one way someone will be considered righteous. It is to receive it as a gift. This verse is quoted in in Romans 1, 17, it's what, it's what set off the Reformation when Martin Luther, who was so desperate trying to make himself right with God, finally understood there's only one way to be right with God. There's only one way to become righteous, that is to receive this gift. And then he went on in chapter 3 to realize that Christ has become our righteousness. Yes, God will, eventually, will call us righteous but not for anything we have done, anything we have produced, but only because we have received Christ and he looks on Christ's righteousness as ours. You and I are not special in and of ourselves. You and I are nothing in and of ourselves And God loves us enough to tell us. I had a friend, I have a friend married to one of my uh, uh, fellow pastors, not in this, in another part of the country. And she tells the story of how when her, she, she and her husband had newly married and, and he was a rather new Christian and she was not yet a Christian. And he said, we need to start going to church. So went to church out in Texas and and uh, this uh, church was a gospel preaching church. And, this, and the preacher that day preached that there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one in this place, no one within the sound of my voice who is righteous, who is good, who is worthy of going to heaven. And by the time she left the place, she said she was madder than a wet hen. I guess that's what they say in Texas. She was angry. How dare he tell me I'm a sinner, that I am not good, that I'm not special, and because, of it, and because I am not, I'm not going to go to heaven. She said, uh, my grandmother has told me, her grandmother had raised her, my grandmother has told me every day of my life, 
You are good. You're the best. You're perfect. You're wonderful. There's nothing wrong with you whatsoever. But then you know what she realized? She said, the reason I was so angry is because I always knew that my grandmother was wrong. And I was terrified she would find out that I'm not good and not as perfect as she thinks I am. And I have thoughts and I do things that she's not aware of. I was terrified that somebody would discover the lie, would discover my secret. And when she said, when I realized that God already knew my secret and loved me before I realized it myself. And that everybody in that sanctuary and everybody on the face of the earth has a secret they're trying to keep, they're trying to suppress, trying to make sure nobody else understands that they don't have it all together, that they're not as disciplined as everybody thinks, that they're not as good with money, they're not as good with time, that they have sexual struggles and they have greed struggles and they, and they have evil thoughts and intentions of their heart. God knows your secret. He knows your heart even more than you do. And while you were still like that, pretending that you're perfect, pretending and, and, and holding up our fists because we're angry at him, he loved us enough to send his son for us. Cheer up. Not only are you worse than you ever thought you were, so is everybody around you. And God knows it. The secret's out. And when you come to grips with it, you'll be in the place to receive love. To receive true love. When you quit trying to think, when you think, I'll, I'll get somebody else's love by, by becoming perfect enough. When I'll finally get God's love for me if I become perfect enough. And, and, and that's not love. That's transaction. But when you say, there is no reason that you should love me. Because every thought and intention of my heart is evil. My throat is an open sepulcher. My heart is an idle factory. And yet you say, you love me? And you love me so much you gave Jesus for me? And when Jesus becomes my savior, you can't love me even any more and you can't love me any less? That is love. And you know what receiving that kind of love will do? It'll make you a truly loving person. Cheer up. We're nothing. Cheer up. We have nothing. We have nothing with which to commend ourselves and we have nothing really that we possess. That's verses 5 to 11. Here he is... Uh, exposing the sins of Babylon, but also the sins of Israel. And he does it by 
by, by, by this uh, prophetic uh, characteristic called, uh, or uh, style called, just, he pronounces woe, woe, W-O-E. Not woe as in stopping a horse, but woe as an invective, a warning, a pronouncement that something is wrong. There are 51 woes in the Old Testament. 43 of them occur in the prophets. Prophets were called to pronounce woe. There's a characteristic of each of these woes. One is the invective. God is angry about something. The second is the threat. If this does not change, this is what I'm going to do. And then the exposure, because he's assuming everyone's going to be self-defensive, self-justifying. So he says, I'm mad about this. If you don't change, you don't repent of this, this is what's going to happen. And oh yes, here's why it is true. Here's the proof of it. Now there are five woes in, in this chapter, as I've mentioned. Greed, a woe against greed. A woe against injustice, a woe against sexual exploitation and unfaithfulness, <clears throat> a woe against violence, and a woe against false worship. Today is just greed. Greed. Greed, one of the, one of the seven deadly sins as the church has historically called them. It's, it's not that they're a substitute for the Ten Commandments, but rather as the church uh, fathers, as, a past, as a theologians tried to wrestle with what are, the, what, are the, what are the motives behind breaking commandments they identified and have identified classically seven deadly sins. Sins that are not only deadly to ourselves, but deadly to others. And if never covered by the righteousness of Christ, will send you to hell. In Latin, they developed a, a, um, an acronym to, re, to remember them. And to remember them in my English classes, I had to invent my own acronym. And here is the one I invented. GPS glue. GPS G-L-E-W. Seven deadly sins. Greed, pride, sloth, gluttony, lust, envy, and wrath. Now, Dante envisioned these seven deadly sins and, and uh, how, they, what they, how they affected us and what, the way they would be judged at the great day. And it was, it's, a, it's a moving, it's a, it's a terrifying picture. Because he, he says, uh, he maps out these seven deadly sins, finally concluding with pride, which he said is the deadliest of all and underlies all of the others. And he says, the more you move through these sins toward pride, the more dehumanized you become. Greed is dealt with very in, intensely in, in uh, Dante. And I, I want to tell you how he envisions it being punished in hell because it's not good for your breakfast. But he says, greed in short, this is what the Bible teaches. Greed is the opposite of contentment. Greed is the opposite of charity. Paul says that if you have food, shelter, and clothing, therewith be content. So we might say that greed is this. 
a desire for more than what we reasonably need to provide for those whom we are responsible to furnish food, shelter, and clothing. Greed is a desire for more than we reasonably need to provide for those for whom we're responsible for food, shelter, and clothing. You say, now there's a lot of subjectivity there. That's right. Because I'm not going to tell you how much you need or how much is too much. But here's the way you answer it. It's by asking the Lord, what am I called to? Who am I called to provide for? Might not just be your family, maybe others, maybe a, the broader community, maybe a whole host of, of, uh, of employees and so forth. But God has called you to some degree of responsibility to provide food, shelter, and clothing so that not only you can be content, but others for, who follow you, who are dependent on you, may be content as well. And you ask the Lord, not, not you say, what is going to make me comfortable, but Lord, how much do I need to provide for these you've entrusted to me? And, and then to say, okay, that's what I'm going to live on. And the rest I'm going to give away. I didn't invent that. That's what the Bible says. Paul says every man should work with his own hands that he might provide for his family and have something to give. That's gospel-centered economics. What is the opposite of that? What does greed look like? Instead of saying, Lord, what do I need reasonably to provide for those for whom I'm responsible to provide food, shelter, and clothing so that, and, and, and I'll limit myself to that so that I'll have something to give. The opposite of that is saying, how can I get more? Because I want more. And I want more things. And I want more for myself. That's greed. And then he also exposes not only individual greed because he says individual greed will kill you. It will atrophy your soul. I just talked to a new Christian the other day. He's not in our church, but he was, he was helping me with something at the house. And he said, um, I said, how are you doing? He said, I'm feeling shaved. I'm feeling sharpened. Now, what do you mean by that? He said, you know how when you, when you sharpen a knife, you, you, you strike it on the stone, and each time you pass it over the stone, it takes off bits of metal. And if you were a knife, I mean, that would hurt. But the result is sharper. It's that the blade is sharper. The Lord is removing things from me, material things from me, he said, and it's painful. But do you know that every time he removes something from me or takes my hand away from something, I feel more alive. Greed not only kills individuals, greed kills others. That's the main focus of this passage is he's exposing those who are in places of authority, places of as employers, places as government leaders, places of, of uh, community leadership. And he says, your greed is harming the people for whom you are responsible. So he exposes that and he says, this is basically what, what is happening. When you're making your corporate profit more important than anything else 
when you're making your corporate profit more important than the personal welfare of those for whom you're responsible. You're sinning against God. Now that's not Marxism. That's not anger at capitalism. That's biblical economics. There's nothing, there's everything right about making as much money as the company possibly can or the city can so that others may benefit from it and flourish. Raising interest rates. Usury is condemned in scripture. And usury is, is just this. When you charge interest rates so high that no one else, that the people who are, who are, pay, who are, who are paying it can never get out of debt. It's the evil of payday lending that we've talked about many times here. It's legal to charge 400% in our state. Just because you can doesn't make it right. It's raising prices. It's, it's step-up sales. It is increased rates on renters that knowingly create hardship. And doing it just because you can. The way we frequently justify actions in our subculture is it's just business. Instead of what is biblical. That's just business. In our gospel priority series, Daryl Williamson made a very fine point on the nature of biblical economics. When he said in Deuteronomy 15 and Deuteronomy 24, we see a moral priority on people's security over the economic rights of lenders. That people's security was morally more significant than the economic rights of those who lend. If you look at Deuteronomy 24, it's that the Lord talks about how we should treat those who have collateral. Treat them with respect. Don't just go grab what they've pledged to you. Stand outside and wait for it. God is saying, I want you to be careful to show respect, to give deference. The point here is not to define a strict kind of social policy, but rather to understand what is foremost in God's heart. God's heart sets the tone for what our social, economic, and business policies ought to be. Read Habakkuk, these verses very carefully. What does he say? You're harming those made in my image. It's it's okay to make a profit. It's good to make a profit. It's only of a business. A city is only sustainable if it is, if it is profitable. But profitability must not justify every act taken against the vulnerable. Now, why do those things matter? What do they have to do with what we've been talking about? This you, you, you have nothing and you, you are nothing and you have nothing. It is to recognize first and foremost, I have nothing on my own. Everything I have is a gift from God and therefore I'm a steward of it. 
It's been entrusted to me, and I am to imitate my God who uses every resource that he created in order to bless others. God set up the world to be a giving organism. The sun gives warmth and light. The rain gives light. And the fall made takers. So when you realize that everything you have, your righteousness, your, your, your eternal life, and everything that you have providentially for food, shelter, and clothing is given to you as a gift from God and is to be stewarded, then it should move you to generosity to say, as God has done to me, I want to do for others. It's good news. Because I can tell you, as I've sat next to the deathbed of many dying saints. I have never once heard someone say, I wanted to live longer because I had some other things I wanted to buy. You're not made for that. God's crafted us to be givers, to cause others to flourish and then to explain that we're doing it because we have been loved by Jesus that way. I was very young when I became a pastor and, the, and the, the oldest member of my congregation uh, became a very important mentor to me. And I'd met her uh, years before because one of her sons was my college professor, another one of her sons was my seminary professor, and then her third son became my children's pediatrician. She had some impressive sons. And my first uh, encounter with hers, I met her before I'd become a pastor, and I said, oh, Miss Nan, I'm so glad to meet you. Your sons are so wonderful. They're so incredible. They've been heroes to me. And she started rolling her window up, and she said, they're nothing but sinners saved by grace. Bye-bye. Then I met her, became her pastor, and she reminded me, I'm the same as true of me. She loved the Lord so passionately. She had nothing materially. She had lost everything. She loved Jesus so much because she recognized every day how much Jesus had done for her. There have been occasions, several occasions in my ministry when the hospital has called me and said, you need to come attend to your church member because they're losing their mind. And typically it's when they're near death. And it typically has been something like this, that, you, you, you know, what is the normal response? You, you can imagine the, the health uh, uh, care worker saying, okay, uh, bed number one is somebody who's angry at God because they're dying. Bed number two is somebody who is afraid to die. Bed number three, that person doesn't, doesn't mind dying. They're eager to go to heaven. Take them to the psych ward or call the pastor first. I had, I had one woman who, who it took us six hours to get her out of the psych ward because she kept saying, I have a headache. I'm so happy. I think I'm going to die. I want to go to heaven. So the, the hospital called me about this woman and they said, you need to come talk to her because she, she said, please don't help me. I'm, I'm ready to go to heaven. I think I'm dying. I'm happy about that. She needs you. It was Miss Nan. 
By the time I got to her bedside, I said, Miss Nan, they say you're crazy because you want to go to heaven. She said, oh, I know it. I'm so happy. I'm getting close to going to heaven. I'm so ready, George. Because I'm so tired of me. I'm so tired of me. What's the gift to living freely, to living generously, to living joyfully, to leading organizations that are the same? It's to get tired of yourself and to cheer up. Say, I really am. I'm even worse than I thought. Which makes Jesus even more amazing. He's all my righteousness. It doesn't matter what I lose. He's given me everything. And whatever is an addition, I have the privilege of imitating him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the privilege of celebrating grace of retelling the gospel every Lord's Day and all through the service. Thank you for your perseverance and tenacity in making sure that we know where real righteousness, real joy, real life is found. Oh, Lord, set us free that the world may see in us the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ, whose name we pray, amen.